This episode of the Children's Literature Podcast is brought to you by Five More Minutes. As in, five more minutes, Mom, I'm almost done with this chapter. Welcome to the Children's Literature Podcast. I'm your host, TQ Townsend. This is a review of Episode 8 of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. It's time to review the last episode of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Prophecy Comes True, which is based on chapters 20 through 22 of The Lightning Thief, the first novel in the Percy Jackson series by Rick Reardon. In The Lightning Thief, the showdown with Ares takes place on the beach in Santa Monica, where Percy, Annabeth, and Grover have washed up after using their magic pearls to escape from Hades' realm underneath a Hollywood recording studio. But in the opening of this final episode, they're in fact back on the beach in New York. This is a good abridgment, because then the story doesn't have to use up time on a cross-country plane ride. I know I've already gushed about how great Adam Copeland is in the role of Ares, but Adam Copeland is great in the role of Ares. Casting a pro wrestler was genius, as you have someone with the right physique and the kind of histrionic drama you need to see in The God of War. The battle is preceded with a flashback to Percy's time back at Camp Half-Blood, where he received sword training from Luke. More of these flashbacks should have been interspersed throughout the series. It would have given the audience more chances to connect with Luke and understand how important his character is. There were moments in each episode where Luke's advice could have been relevant, and it would have made his betrayal hit harder in the last episode. Aside from that, Percy's sword fight with Ares is fantastic. It's clear once again that Walker Scobell has really trained for this role, and he holds his own very nicely against Copeland, who's had a long, successful career performing in fight scenes. The fight plays out as it does in the novel, with Percy successfully goading and manipulating Ares. The actual battle is shorter than I would have liked, but it was a lot of fun to watch. Armed with just his short sword, Percy is tiny compared to the hulking figure of Ares, but he's quicker and he's smarter. Still, he's ultimately overpowered. He is a kid after all. Ares dominates with a windmill body slam and then kicks Percy 20 feet down the beach. But the demigod has one last trick. A giant wave knocks Ares down, allowing to Percy to dash in for a disabling slash with his sword. Ares retreats after this. In the book, it's made clear that some great, frightening, unseen power is what stops the fight, but in the show, Ares seems to choose to walk away, either because he's wounded or because he knows his trickery has been discovered. They did show the golden ichor flowing from his wound, though, so points for literary and mythological accuracy there. This part of the episode gives you and your kids a chance to talk about the nature of the ancient Greek gods. In ancient times, people believed that the gods of Olympus had physical forms. They did eat and drink, although not human food. Instead, they consumed ambrosia and nectar, which gave them immortality. Instead of blood, their bodies flowed with ichor, which was golden rather than red. On the rare occasions when the gods' blood was spilled, ichor would kill any humans that touched it but it also had great power. Icar that came from the titan Prometheus made plants grow after it had landed on the ground. Your kids can research more about how the Greek gods' bodies were different from human bodies and the rules that were in place around who was allowed to consume nectar and ambrosia. Punishments for stealing the food of the gods were very harsh, and likewise, when a mortal was awarded a taste or even a smell, it was a pretty big deal. 
There are also various theories about the nature of demigods like Percy and his friends. Did they have ichor in their bodies or not? Did they have a mix of blood and ichor? It's interesting to think about the actual practicalities of Greek mythology as it shows how complex and rich this religious system was. So Perseus won the first of three boss fights in this episode. As in the novel, Ares leaves behind the helm stolen from Hades. In the book, all three Furies show up to collect the helm, but the scene in the show works better with just one. As in the novel, she's not just astonished that Percy was not the lightning thief, but also that he was able to successfully get the god's stolen property back and return it. You see in this moment that the Furies are not irrational creatures. Their attacks on Percy were never personal. They're just good soldiers who do as they're told. This is true both to the characters in the novel, as well as in Greek mythology. Now that there's no beef with Percy, the Furies have no reason to come after him. After the Fury leaves, the kids try to figure out what to do next. This bit isn't in the book, but I do like the line where Grover warns his friend that he shouldn't go to Olympus, saying, Percy, you don't want Zeus's attention. This is true. In most ancient polytheistic religions, the chief god wasn't actually the one people worshipped the most. Most statues and shrines were to Poseidon, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, and so on. Zeus was too big, too great, and too downright scary to interact with directly. It rarely went well for any mortal who caught his attention. This was also true in Norse mythology. Odin was the Allfather, but interacting with him usually meant meeting a terrible fate. Thor was much more popular as someone to worship, because his powers dealt with more practical, everyday issues. You even see this dynamic somewhat in Christian churches, where the Christian god is almost never depicted, but images of his son, Jesus, are quite common. Grover's line goes by quickly, but it really expresses how a lot of people feel about their gods. I only have one thing I'm going to be super picky about in this review, and that's of the moment Percy arrives on Olympus. It looks very pretty, but it does have that too-clean-to-be-real look that makes computer-generated landscapes look fake. Also, the architecture's just off. I'm not saying that the Greek god's style wouldn't have evolved in the last 4,000 years, but the columns are in a palm tree form that comes from ancient Egypt, not Greece. You can also see some pagodas up on the hillside, which are Asian, and the rest of it looks like it was stolen from the Lord of the Rings films. I don't need to see an exact replica of the Acropolis, and I like to see designers come up with their own ideas, but this image should at least be drawing on the right cultures, and anything you do mix should mix well. Also, it's like this massive city and there's no people anywhere. The moment goes by fast enough, but it doesn't feel real at all, and it's quite unlike Olympus as described in the novel, which is full of busy shops and crowds of people. Luckily, the lack of reality is quickly reversed when Percy makes it to the top of Olympus, where things are much more believable and interesting. All twelve of the thrones are empty but one, and it's occupied by Zeus, who's rocking a power suit just like in the book. The actor doesn't have a thick gray beard, but I think a clean-shaven look works here. I was sad to hear that Lance Reddick died recently, because he's one of those actors who strengthened any production he was in. He made a career out of playing steely-eyed, do-not-mess-with-me types, and he was an excellent choice for the character of Zeus. He makes a big impression in a short time, bringing weight and power to the character. If the show gets renewed for more episodes, I'm sure they'll find another good actor to play the King of the Gods, but it really is a shame that we won't get to see more of Lance Reddick in this role. 
Toby Stevens makes his second appearance as Poseidon, and once again, he's excellent. But there are some changes to how the scene plays out in the book. In The Lightning Thief, Poseidon is on his throne when Percy arrives, and he eagerly greets his son on arrival. Percy shows appropriate respect, and Zeus and Poseidon counsel one another. Zeus tells Percy that he's only sparing the demigod's life because the bolt was returned, and the kid nervously thanks him. The scene in the show is much more confrontational, playing out more like a boss fight than a conversation. Percy is aggressive and defiant, showing very natural and believable 12-year-old behavior, but it is out of place here. Percy treats Zeus exactly the same way that he treats everyone else, and this undermines the fact that this is a conversation with the literal actual king of the literal actual gods. It would have been better to see Percy a little intimidated by the massive power standing in front of him. There is a nice dramatic moment when Poseidon zips in from nowhere to stop his brother from smiting Percy with a lightning bolt for being a mouthy little brat who has the nerve to tell Zeus how to run his business, but it is a completely different scene from what's in the novel. The dialogue between father and son is slightly different from the book, but the conclusion's the same. There's no sense of resolution between Poseidon and Percy. This is not, and will never be, an ordinary parent-child relationship. Percy is a modern human boy and his father is an ancient force of nature. His dad will never be there to play catch. He can't help with homework. In The Lightning Thief, Poseidon acknowledges the unfairness of all of this, apologizing to Percy for having given him a hero's fate, which is never happy. And at the same time, Poseidon tells his son that he's proud of Percy and claims him as a true son. It's a contradictory moment, with conflicting statements from the father matching the conflicting feelings of the son. The show's interpretation of the scene is a bit different. Percy does finally show some respect, calling his dad Sir and averting his eyes after finally getting to see him face to face. And while he doesn't broach the subject of his own relationship with Poseidon, he does ask whether the sea god ever thinks of his mother. Both actors play this scene very well. Poseidon projects the feeling of roiling emotions running deep, and Percy's defiance goes out with the tide and is replaced with thoughtful questioning. Poseidon then sends his son home without answering his question. In both the book and on-screen version of the scene, father and son finally meet, but there's unfinished business between them. From here, the book and the show take slightly different paths to more or less the same conclusion. In The Lightning Thief, Percy goes back home after meeting his dad. He's relieved to find his mother Sally returned to the land of the living, and disgusted to find that Gabe is as horrible as ever. He also discovers that the gods have returned the head of Medusa to him. Fair enough, I get why they don't want it. The book then has some surprisingly murky morality, because Percy and his mother conspire to murder Gabe. Like, don't get me wrong, Gabe is awful and nobody misses him once he's gone, but it's still murder even if you use Medusa's head to do it. The show toned Gabe down to just being an annoying loser rather than an abusive creep. I've spent the whole TV series wondering what they were going to do with him at the end. The writers took kind of a cowardly route, having Gabe discover Medusa's head on his own and accidentally turning himself to stone. Gabe in the novel is bad enough that, while I can't endorse vigilante murder, I'm not going to weep any tears over a guy like that getting deleted. The problem is, the version of Gabe from the show is not a great person, but I'm not sure he deserves death. By softening Gabe's character, the show makes him too weak to be a villain. In the adaptation, 
Percy and Sally never find out that the Medusa's head has been returned to their apartment. They never have a chance to make a choice about what to do with it. By having Gabe die accidentally, viewers don't get to see that Percy and Sally can be as ruthless as any Greek god when it comes to offing an enemy. The final boss fight between Luke and Percy makes for some great TV. Like I've said before, it's clear that these kids put a lot of effort into their physical training. The actor playing Luke is particularly well cast. He looks like someone who spent most of his life doing athletic activity, because he has. He's able to move with the kind of strength and agility that can only come from actually working hard to become an athlete. However, because Luke's character is absent from most of the series, this fight doesn't have the needed emotional intensity. In the book, Percy has more time at camp, and that gives readers the chance to see his relationship develop with Luke. The show didn't do this. Even one or two quick flashbacks sprinkled into earlier episodes would have established Luke as someone who was an important friend and mentor to Percy, making his betrayal hurt. In The Lightning Thief, Luke gets help in the fight from a giant scorpion, and Percy is nearly killed in the battle. The show eliminates these two things and instead has Annabeth step in at the last second. This could have worked since it lets viewers see how she was also betrayed by Luke, but it makes no sense that she stayed invisible until after the boys had been fighting for a while. The only reason she reveals herself when she does is because that's what's in the script. If the scene were true to the character of Annabeth, she would have stepped in as soon as she realized that Percy was in danger. Luke makes some good arguments which echo his speech in the novel. The gods are bad parents. Making Percy doubt what he owes his father is probably Luke's best chance of persuading Percy. Despite this, the dialogue is a bit rushed and it feels like a James Bond villain revealing the whole plan for absolutely no reason. This happens again later when Kronos, the baddie behind it all, appears to Percy and spills his plan. So, how faithful was this episode to the parts of the novel it was based on? I give a rating from 1 to 5 Snapes, with my system named in honor of Alan Rickman's superb translation of the character of Severus Snape from page to screen. The final episode of Percy Jackson and the Olympians gets three Snapes. The changes to Gabe's character, and because of this, the changes to Percy and Sally's characters, are pretty big. Some other changes are good abridgments, like getting rid of Percy's cross-country flight, but the changes to the fight with Luke left me dissatisfied. Overall, the major points of the plot were hit as they needed to be, but the novel and the show often took slightly different paths to get to these points. It's not automatically a bad thing when adaptations make changes. Stories need to be told differently depending on the setting. You can take the same tale and tell it through the written word, dance, visual art, music, television, film, or live theater. There's no speaking in a ballet production, but a story can still be told well through dance. And you can take a novel and tell the story on television. What matters is that the fundamentals of the plot and characters shouldn't be compromised. Percy Jackson and the Olympians has been a pleasant surprise for me. I had pretty much given up on Disney as in the last few years they've mostly just recycled their classic films into bland sludge. Anything new they made had lackluster characters and plots that made absolutely no sense. I was not surprised that almost everything they put out last year bombed. But then here comes this nice show that really captures the kind of Disney that I grew up with. Great family entertainment that faithfully and wholesomely interprets good source material. So what did you think of this episode? Do you feel it wrapped up season one nicely? Let me know. 
You've been listening to the Children's Literature Podcast. Please subscribe and give the show a rating. Send comments to letters at childrensliteraturepodcast.com. I'm your host, TQ Townsend. Thanks for listening.